Amen. Thank you for your singing. You may be seated. That's okay. You can applaud for them. Because you're really applauding for the Lord. No, because I, I, and I want us to encourage that we're encouraging one another. We're not, when we do that, we're not lifting up the worship team and saying, you guys are amazing. We're saying God's amazing because we need Him. And regardless of where our lives have walked this week and where we are today, we need Him. And I just think about the news articles that I've read this week, the stories that have been told, even the news, just hearing from a, a, a clerk over here at the Speedway, you look at it and it just tears your heart apart because you see the things that are going on in the world. And sometimes they're going on right within our own lives. And I have to ask, when you wake up in the morning, do you look at what's going around you or maybe later in the day and you just want to cry out, it's not fair because I see what's going on around me. I look at life for that person over there And I've watched them, and it doesn't seem that they really care about what's doing right. It might be something that's going on at your work. I mean, something has happened, and you look at it, and you want to be honest, and so you explain exactly what happened, and it makes you look bad. But then the next guy on the line, he looks at it and says, you know, it's all these other things, and there's lies telling about what has happened. And you're just like, what's going on here? That's just not fair. And then sometime later, the next job has come up on the first shift, and you work on third shift with that guy. And folks look at him, and they say, okay, they move him from third to first shift, and you're still stuck working nights. And as you talk to others about it, they look at you, and they tell you, well, you know, maybe this is what you should do. And it just seems like doing what they were doing, what that guy was doing, would be prosperous. That's where the reward is. But where's the justice? Or maybe you're single and you're trying to live a pure and God-pleasing life. But the person down the hallway, your friend, is living a promiscuous life. The life that all the influencers and TV and everybody would say is so pleasing to themselves. And then you even find out that others in there are behind your back mocking your choices. Well, that other person is growing in popularity. That hurts, doesn't it? And in the short term, when we think about that, that teaching, what they're choosing to follow, what they're doing, it seems right. It seems like they're getting what you want as well. Where's the justice in all of that? Have you wrestled with questions like this? Are you wrestling with questions like this even today? Because even if we're not right now, but as we are, and I think we all are, we can also know we're certainly not the first to, be, to do so because others have been wrestling with these same questions throughout all of history. In fact, the Psalms give us a look into the heart of man struggling in this way. And today, instead of another submarine illustration, I thought we'd actually use God's Word to introduce the passage that we're going to look at. In Psalm 73, we see the psalmist, who is Asaph, not David this time, but Asaph opening up to God in what is a raw and real way because of how his his situation is impacting him. He starts by saying, But as for me, my feet come close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped 
He's not trying to spin the situation to minimize things or make them look better than they are. And then we look at how he continues as he explains why he was so close to stumbling and he's transparent with the Lord when he admits, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now we might think to ourselves, wow, this guy's really being honest. That's amazing. Well, at the same time, we're thinking to ourselves, did he really just say that? But then it's just the beginning. As we continue in the psalm, he pours out his heart, and there's a lot to be stored up here. He says, for there are no pains in their death. He's talking about these other people that he's looking at. There's no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plague like mankind. Pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges with fatness. Their imaginations of heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. The writer Asaph is saying, look at them, and it looks like they have good. But yes, I know what they're doing is evil, but the result, their life looks good to me. So what teachers is it that they're following? Because maybe that's where I should go. But if that's not enough, look at everybody else who's jumping on the wagon when he says, therefore his people return to this place and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. It's a look at what that guy is saying. Then even more so, not only do they live this way, but they're so bold. They say, how does God know? There's no knowledge with the Most High. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they've increased in wealth. But you may say to yourself, well, Rod, that was a thousand years ago. Is that still the way today? I think it is, isn't it? It sure feels like that sometimes. Now, this may not reflect your exact situation, but it would not be hard for every one of us in this room to look at the conditions in our culture, in our media, in our politics, and be able to look at and write a psalm very similar to this. But what I don't want us to do is stop right here in our psalm We want to continue looking with the same attitude that Asaph had. First, he started by admitting his doubt. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He's crying out to the suffering he's going through. And if that's not full despair, if that's not a level of deep spiritual depression, it's certainly close to that. And many of us could say, I can, I can relate to what he's saying. But knowing the Lord, as Asaph did, he didn't let it end there. He said, If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. In other words, he knows that his thinking is wrong and he knows that there's something missing in his calculation. So he knows he needs to turn back So let's take a look because he tells us where he goes until I came to the sanctuary of God. He went to the Lord. And then look at what he sees. Then I perceived their end. Consider that phrase. 
I perceived their end. What I've been watching in others looked like the outcome justified by the path, but now God's giving me the ability to look beyond today and I perceived their end. Because when we look at the wicked around us, is that really where I want to go? And just as Asaph did, it would be wise for us all to say, where does their path lead us? What will this look like in eternity? Then I perceived their end. And it's in this that Asaph then began to come out of his spiritual funk. He said, surely you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You cast the wicked down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. So now he's saying, instead of prospering, it's the wicked who are in the slippery places. They thought God didn't know what they were doing and even bragged about it out loud. And they were wrong. They confuse God's patience and long-suffering with impotence and apathy. And so we're called to look carefully at their end. And as Asaph expresses how God woke him up, look what he says. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With the counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Friends, this is, as we look through our passage today, this is where I want our hearts to go. I use this psalm because it's exactly what Peter is telling us about false teachers, but he's also giving us the same hope when we come out the other end. Now this year, we've been continuing through our series of hope for everyday life, and we've been focusing on our verse-by-verse walk through Second Peter entitled, Growing in Grace and Knowledge. And that's what we need to do. Because that series, Growing in Grace and Knowledge, comes right from the end of Second Peter. That we're called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and in the day of eternity, considering their end. Amen. And these would be Peter's final words to the church. That, he, that we might grow in grace and knowledge. So if you will, join me as we read through Second Peter. And as we recall, I mean, Peter started in chapter 1 with some very positive statements about the beauty of the gospel and the sufficiency of God's Word. Now those are two reasons that we can have hope. Hope that people like you and me could possibly grow in grace and knowledge. But then we're going to see how he changes when he starts chapter 2. Remember from last week, Verse 1 started, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Consider the end of the false teachers is the logic 
that Peter now will continue in these next seven verses that we're going to cover today. The same point that Asaph made in Psalm 73. Consider their end. If you will, read along with me. This is the Word of God, starting chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. This morning, what we're talking about is choosing teachers wisely by considering their end. And with the time that we have remaining, we're going to think about three responses to our God who will someday execute perfect justice. So our first response, the one we would naturally go would be shock, outrage, and anger towards false teachers. But what Peter is teaching us here today is we need to be sobered by God's judgment on the unrighteous. My heart breaks for the false teachers and those who are following their teacher when I consider their end. And just as we know the faithfulness and perfect consistency of our good and loving God, the same consistency exists in God's perfect justice. And so Peter tells us about it. And he gives us a picture unlike any by going through three examples from the past. He starts with angels. Now, the doctrine of angelology is not necessarily something we talk a lot in Bible studies or from the pulpit, but when it comes up and we need to talk about it, we will. Because our culture really has some very interesting pictures of what angels look like or what they are. Consider what Gary Larson puts into his cartoons on the far side. Or in television, you'd look at shows like The Good Omen, and this is how the world wants us to picture angels. But it's pretty obvious that those aren't the kind of concepts that Peter is discussing here. For he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Or consider another parallel passage in the book of Jude. Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, as we look at this and we're trying to unpack this scripture, it is a fair question to ask, what angels are those whom Peter mentions? So, now, can I give you an honest answer on this one? Who are those angels? We don't know. We don't know with certainty. Because Peter and Jude don't tell us with any certainty. 
When they wrote their letters, they had an expectation of what their original readers would have already understood, and as such, they didn't provide the additional details. And so sometimes we have to be okay with understanding that God has given us just what we need 2,000 years later, knowing that the original readers might have understood something that's not clearly spelled out in the text. And how can we have hope in that? Well, we can, because we know that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We see in how he does that, because honest answer part two, we don't have to know for certain to understand the meaning of this text. Think about it. Here's the real meaning that we can get out of this text. Some angels sinned, and they were severely judged for some reason. And if God would discipline angels for their disobedience, he'll surely judge people who will either teach false doctrine or follow false doctrine. That we can know to be true. And how do we know that? We see that in the severity of what we uh, see here. Contrast what Peter has said about the angels in this passage. They were ca- God cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That was one group of angels. And then let's look at the future of righteous angels that we see in Revelation. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Remember that Jude and Peter spoke of the fallen angels, angels who did not keep their own domain. They were not here. They would abandoned their proper abode. They'd abandoned the worship, but these righteous angels were joyfully submitting to God's truth and living in a way that was consistent with it. So perhaps we should ask the question, we will not be angels, but which angels do we want to be like when you consider their end? Should we therefore conclude in this life, based on the things that are going on around us, that we might as well follow the false ideas because justice will never be done? Friends, Peter's point is the angels would disagree with us on that. And so we should be sobered by their judgment. But if Peter's readers or any of us might say, well, that was the angels. That's not for us. We should also be sobered by the judgment of unrighteous men because it's throughout the book of Genesis, but it's clearly pictured in God's judgment on the ancient world. We're speaking here about the flood, and the biblical record is blunt and does not try to soften this message. Remember, this already comes into God's Word in just chapter 6 of Genesis. And we read these words, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, 
I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And how did we get there? Take a look at the flow of history to this point, and the progression is breathtaking. It started with God's true prophecy when he said to Adam, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. There's his gracious provision of all things. But he said, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. God's direct prophecy of what would happen in disobedience. But Satan's false prophecy would turn around when he said, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. And Peter, with those truths and lies in mind, gives us a sober warning, reminding us he did not spare the ancient world. Consider their end. Now I realize we're living in a time when some, perhaps many people, don't want to hear about the judgment of God. They don't want to hear about God's wrath. They would prefer to only focus on what they consider to be the positive aspects of God's nature. What that would be saying is, well, I only want a God who has the parts or his attributes that I like. I only want a God that supports what I think is good. But if we do that, we have to ignore large sections of Scripture, like our passage today. In doing so, we would become like the false teachers that Peter is warning us against. And if he hasn't made his point yet with the flood, his third example, Sodom and Gomorrah. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Think about it. This is only about 450 years after the flood. And you may recall that where they were living in Sodom and Gomorrah was a beautiful place. In Genesis 13, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan that was well watered everywhere because this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. And having been taught about the Creator, knowing about the judgment of the Lord through the flood, one would think that at this time, in this short time after the flood, that living in a paradise like the Valley of the Jordan would cause people to love God. It would cause them to choose to follow Him for His great provisions. But it doesn't look like that's what happened, does it? Because soon after Lot had taken his flocks and his family and settled in this fertile land, the Lord told Abraham, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. It appears that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah believed that there was a better life than God was providing, an easier life than following the Lord, a more pleasurable life, the one that they wanted because someone was filling them with false teaching. And what would Peter say? Consider their end. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Now, if you're with us here today and you're thinking, whoa, I mean, this is some fire and brimstone preaching... Well, perhaps instead of thinking about the preaching as fire and brimstone, consider 
God's Word gives us the fire and brimstone. And we need to listen because we genuinely believe that there's a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. And this would probably be a good time to pause and ask all of us this morning, are you properly sobered by God's judgment? But listen, praise the Lord. We have many, many reasons for joy in the same thing. And we're going to talk about some of them next because Peter doesn't leave us simply to be frightened of God's judgment. He gives us reason to give thanks as well. But before we move on to that, I think it's okay for us to spend a few moments considering a sober judgment for where we're tempted to follow the easy life, the easy teaching of this world, false promises of pleasure, ease, and comfort. We have to be careful today because sometimes we can be dismissive when others are coming to us asking us questions about who are we listening to, who are the teachers that are influencing us, whether it be through music or entertainment, books, podcasts, on and on. Do we dismiss God's Word or the rebuke of a faithful friend as if the consequences of a little bit of sin in our life and a little bit of rebellion aren't that bad? Because, you know, just a little false prophecy probably won't hurt us, right? Friends, consider their end. Consider the angels. Consider the ancient world. Consider Sodom and Gomorrah. Are you sobered to the point of caution and carefulness? When's the last time that you turned off of a movie, changed the channel on the TV, closed up a book, because what it was trying to bring into your life and teach you was drawing you away from God's Word. I don't need this kind of teaching in my life. I want to go where God's trying to take me. And so I need to consider the end. And it's sobering. It's sobering. But then let's also consider the things that God is doing in the midst of all this evil and chaos and what He is capable of doing because we can be amazed by God's rescue of his people. By now, we're seeing a very clear contrast between the reliable prophets of chapter 1 giving us everything we need for life and godliness and the false prophets of chapter 2 who are secretly introducing false heresies, maligning the way of truth. And so we consider their end. Even before our passage today, it said, the judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And anyone who doubts that should remember the angels, the ancient world, and Sodom and Gomorrah. But what about those who choose to follow a reliable prophet? What about those who choose to follow the truth of God's Word? Peter had said that so we have the prophetic Word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This is the teacher we need to follow. And then we can ask, where does this road lead? But God tells us, it's okay. Ask Noah. We can even ask Lot. Because we find that their destination is preservation and rescue. There's hope. Let's take a look at Noah and his family. Because he said, and God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. But why Noah? Why his family? 
Well, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now that's totally different than false teachers because Noah himself had the one and true perfect teacher. He walked with God and he received the word of God directly. We see where it says, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, the wicked. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. And then later on it comes back to say, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And God gave him the directions on how to build the ark and how the Lord would use it to preserve and rescue Noah's family and his creation. Now this was no small task, and Noah had to deal with it because it was going to take him 120 years to build the ark. And so what would he do with God's prophecy during that time? Well, Noah did exactly as God had commanded him. Why? Because he was a righteous man. It doesn't mean that, God, that Noah was sinless. It does not mean even that Noah was good. But God, because God's Word shows us Noah's imperfections as well. But his righteousness can be seen in his response to God. He believed God, and he did according to what God commanded him. He was just like Abraham. Abraham wasn't saved by his works as an Old Testament saint. But in Romans it says Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. The same was true of Noah. He placed his faith in God and God's righteousness was credited to him. And even though it was not in his view yet, Noah was looking forward to the cross when righteousness would be fully secured through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that, Noah not only became a doer of righteousness, but how did Peter describe him? as a preacher of righteousness. Now you might be asking yourselves, like we did as we were preparing this message, what does that mean? We certainly don't have the sermons of Noah preserved anywhere. We don't even know of any converts of Noah, other than likely his family who joined him on the ark. But we can see who Noah was because of his end. It wasn't like the fallen angels. It wasn't like the rest of the ancient world. He and his family were preserved. Now many of us who hear this message today across all three of our campuses may be sitting here today and have been blessed that somewhere in our lives there was someone like this, a preacher of righteousness. Maybe your dad was your Noah. Maybe your mom, a Sunday school teacher, a youth pastor, someone who showed you the truth and the righteousness. But as you listened and you compared it to everything else that was around you, it felt like, well, that doesn't match up with what my friends are saying. That feels restrictive. I just don't know if I can do that. Well, the question is, who will you follow? Consider their end. We have another example that Peter gave us as well. Let's look at Lot. It says that if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, Peter's use of Lot here causes many of us to step back because we look at it and we say, but I've read the story of Lot. How is it that Peter is calling Lot 
righteous? It doesn't make sense to me. And that's a good question that we should all be asking when we read his word. But then at the same time, maybe instead of judging Peter's example, we can find hope. Because if Lot was credited righteousness, what does that mean for me? To help us look at what Peter was saying with Lot, I want to show you the words of Douglas Moo, who writes a beautiful commentary on Second Peter. He says, Well, certainly far from perfect, Lot never lost his basic orientation to the Lord. Thus the word righteous that Peter uses need mean no more than this. In the New Testament, this word, righteous, often refers to a person's status before the Lord rather than one's innate moral virtue. Moreover, it's important to note that Peter does not say that the Lord rescued Lot because he was a righteous man. And similarly, it will not be by our virtue of our inherent goodness that God will deliver Christians in Peter's day or in ours from the judgment that he will bring on the ungodly. Rather, it will be because of their knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord and because they're distressed as Lot was at the rampant sin that is around them. You see, undoubtedly, Lot had been impacted by the life and teaching of his uncle Abraham. And when he moved into Sodom, he saw what was going around him. And it was tormenting him. But even in that, we see that he still needed help. Because when the angels came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he hesitated. So the men, the angels, seized his hand, the hand of his wife, the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. Folks, that's what I call a rescue plan. I'd love that. It's a whole lot better than what happened to the fallen angels or the people of Noah's day or certainly all those who were left in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as we consider this, Today might be a good day to think about who is that preacher of righteousness in your life. And then maybe we should call them. Thank your dad, your mom, your Sunday school teacher for being that preacher of righteousness who taught you about the positional righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, as well as the practical righteousness that results as we walk out the Christian life in obedience to God. You might even choose to reassure them that even though you're being exposed to a lot of different ideas, being exposed to false teaching, you're choosing to follow God's Word. Because you've considered the end. And you want to be a part of God's preservation and rescue. Now our third point today is equally important for our hope. But it's actually going to be very quick as we walk this through. We're called to be encouraged Because God knows how to make things right in the end. Look what it says. Then God, the Lord, knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Praise the Lord. He knows how to rescue us from our temptations and from our sin and make a place for us in eternity that we can be with Him. Salvation. And at the same time, The Lord knows to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. What we look at today and say, that's not fair, I don't understand, we can trust the Lord with. The Lord knows. 
It's a powerful phrase. And so we ask, what's the situation in our lives in this world that really bothers you right now that's just causing you great weight upon your heart because justice is not happening? Consider the false teaching and the teachers. Even when they appear to be winning, you may feel like the psalmist Asaph that my my feet are slipping. I feel as though I'm going to stumble. I'm becoming envious of the wicked. It seems like it's in vain that I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. But friends, consider their end. Because the Lord knows both how to save He will save whom He he will save. We sang it this morning. But the sobering truth is He will also judge whom He will judge. And so as we finish up with our three responses to our God who will someday execute perfect justice, are we sobered? Well, at the same time, are we amazed by His rescue plan? And are we encouraged to know the Lord knows how to save and to execute His justice? I pray that's the case. And as such, I want to send us all off today with four practical takeaways. Four practical takeaways that we can walk with to take this truth and walk forward. First, We need to be sure that we've received the righteousness of God. Noah and Lot were imperfect people, but they were men of faith. They believed God, and He credited it to them as righteousness. And what does God's Word say for you and me? If you profess Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised His Son from the dead, you will be saved. God knows how to save. But we also have to follow the true teaching. We have to follow God's Word and know that it's based on through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved. The world's going to want to invade your heart with everything else. But we have to know that this is the truth. And we have to receive it. And if you're here today and there's still a question upon your heart, you're not sure what that means, what it looks like to profess Jesus Christ as Lord, to believe in Him and understand the promises that He's given and how He's proven Himself through the cross, please, 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 come find one of the service pastors. Let's find time to sit down and explore the true teaching, God's perfect prophecy and promises that are for those who believe so that we can answer those questions. Our second practical step. Let's rejoice in our Savior who makes righteousness and our eternal destiny with Him possible. Consider what what, uh, Paul said in 2 Timothy. For this reason I also suffer these things. Are you suffering under false teaching that's impacting you around you? Paul was suffering in his life, but he said, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard that I have entrusted to him until that day. Do you rejoice that your salvation is assured? We can rejoice in that. 
the one who makes our eternal destiny possible because it's through him alone. And then our third practical is to remember that because the Lord will make all things right in the end, we don't have to make them right today. And often our role today is simply to return good for evil. Where there is evil impacting those around you in your life, you are not responsible to make it all right. You're responsible to follow the Lord. And His Word says in Romans 12, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. We read about that today. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's sobering, but we can also trust in it. And then finally, folks, as we walk away today, I ask that you would choose your teachers wisely. Remember their end. Those who follow faithfully, it's a path of preservation and rescue, a path to salvation. Those who choose false teaching, consider the angels. Consider the ancient world. Consider Sodom and Gomorrah. Be sobered by it but be amazed in the God who's made a way and knows how to save. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today. We praise your name for who you are. Lord, we see the whole of our good and perfect God, perfect in his justice, perfect in executing justice on the ungodly, but Lord, we don't rejoice in their destruction. Lord, help our hearts to be sobered by it. Lord, for we also know that You are able, and Lord, You are willing, and You are capable of saving. Lord, I pray that all would come to know You as Lord and Savior. That all would choose to want to follow Your teaching, being obedient to You. Lord, that we might, like Noah and like Lot, come under Your preservation be a part of your rescue plan. Lord, help us to bring that message and truth out to many, many others around us. And then, Lord, help us to be able to choose wisely in the end. For, Lord, we trust in you and you alone. Father, we love you. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.